Friends, I want to start this morning off in a letting you know that our topic this morning, as you can see on the screen, community of hope. And we're going to be discussing what it means to be a community of hope. But anytime you discuss a community, you have to get to know the people in your community, right? So we're going to start off with an exciting round of confessions from your pastor. Because how can you get to know me and trust me if you don't know about some of my greater weaknesses? Though if I was to preach my weaknesses, we'd be here for weeks on end. But I'll start off with a few confessions. Because you know what? The more that I can share my embarrassing traits, the more you can say, hey, I know this guy. And we made a mistake hiring him. (laughs) And I can't wait for the 11 o'clock service when my wife hears that I'm actually going to share some embarrassing confessions about myself. Because you see, her level of embarrassing and mine are two different levels. And knowing that I used to be a former morning show DJ on the radio, she knows that I am an open book to anything, and that scares her a lot, right? I'll start off soft and and light. Here's an odd little quirk that I have that will let you know a bit about the conundrum that it is to know me. I hate my birthday, and I get super crabby on my birthday. Now, that's not unusual. A lot of us do. A lot of us don't like our birthdays and the attention that gets paid to us on that day, and I'm no different. Here's the quirky part. I get just as crabby the next day because nobody's paying attention to me. (laughs) Or there's this. Last year, I started using hair regrowth stuff on the back of my head. I didn't think anything about it until one day I'm talking about it and Andy McDougal goes, dude. Now, as you know, dude has a ton of different meanings depending on the inflection. His inflection was one of shame and scorn directed at me. And I'll tell you the truth, though. I started using it not because I fear balding. That's just part of getting old. I don't care. Here's why I started using it. So ever since coming on and abiding, when we get done with the sermon, usually the next day what I like to do is I'll, I'll, what's called air checking. It was a term from radio. You listen back to your show the next day to learn and grow from it. So I'll watch my sermons again. What kind of verbal crutches am I using? Habits do I have? How can I improve on things? And the reason is the side camera shot makes my head look like it's been cut off in the back. So I figure with enough hair growth stuff, it'll make my head look round again. That's why I'm using that. And then there's this one. And it was interesting. I did not get a lot of laughs from this one in the first service. I think people were nervous for me or my marriage. But I'm going to share this with you. Elise Knobloch knows where I'm going with this because I've shared this before. And she's like, wow, I can't believe Rachel even married you. So for three straight years in a row, during the dating phase and even into marriage, I heard the phrase through tears on my wife's birthday, this is the worst birthday ever. My wife is not a drama queen, and it's not because I got her a bad gift. It's because for some weird reason, I want to fight with my wife on her birthday. I don't know why, okay? Three years straight, I did that. Do you want to know what ended the three-year run? Was the fourth year for my wife's birthday that night, we watched Monday Night Football in a pizza hut because she knew that way there would not be a fight. (laughs) The saddest part again, the saddest part to all this is a few years ago, I must have been like, I remember, I wonder what that was like to be really an awful husband. I'm going to do it again. It was like, it was like a couple years back, I remember through tears, my wife said, this is the worst birthday ever. And I'm like, wow, I may be the only guy in the world that four times has heard from his one woman, this is the worst birthday ever. 
So I'm not afraid to share anything about me. I'm willing to be an open book. Which is also, friends, on a serious note, I'm not afraid to share this one because I think some of you here are. And it's a misunderstanding I think a lot of us had. And if you are embarrassed to share on this, you're actually carrying a heavier burden than you need to. I've been dealing with depression since I was 17 years old. Been on medication for it that entire time, except for the one time I tried not, and that was a catastrophe. When you're depressed on your best days, I'll feel about as good as you do on an average day. And on my bad weeks, you have this just deep internal darkness, this internal pain, this internal despair that just says, I don't feel like going on anymore. Not in an ending my life thing, but just there's no motivation to do anything because life hurts. Life is really hard to navigate, and what's the hope in all of this? And those days are really difficult. And what I want to do, friends, is I want to talk to us today then, how does the church speak to this and address concerns with mental health issues and how do we love and support one another as a community of hope? And so with that being said, I invite you to please rise for the reading of our sermon text. Our sermon text today is going to come from the book of Romans, chapter 15, reading verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This ends our sermon text. You can be seated. And there's a few reasons that I want to speak on this topic today. One of the reasons I want to talk about this, Pastor Kirk asked me if I would actually talk about this. I'm almost done with my classes. I have 10 weeks left and then two internships and I've completed my master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And I'll talk more about that later because I'm going to need your help during the internship time, right? But until then, in my schooling, I have done so much research, and it's fascinating how much of this all points to the fact that hope, and especially hope that comes from faith, and especially Christian faith and the hope that we have, how it is so incredible at addressing depression. And secondly, I want to talk about this, not only from my own experiences, but actually from my experiences of counseling with people who are depressed, and how we as a church can be better then at reaching out to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are dealing with mental health issues. And today isn't just about depression, it's about anxiety as well. The comorbidity between the two makes it hard to even tell the difference. Anxiety is driven by fear, depression is driven by hopelessness. Oftentimes they share the same type of traits, they present the same way, and usually one leads to the other. So what I want to talk about this morning again is how the church can address mental health issues. Where if you don't suffer from mental health issues, that's excellent. How then can you care and love and support those that do? And I want to talk this morning as well that if you suffer from depression or anxiety or some of these other issues, how you can get through it, not necessarily get over it, but learn to navigate your way through it with the healing power of the gospel. You think about what Paul said here, may the God of hope fill you with all joy which is a great cure for depression, and peace, which would help with anxiety. So the first thing I want to talk about is how we as the church, and Frankie actually as individuals in this, how we can be better at addressing mental health, because individuals need to as well. 
especially with depression and anxiety. And the first is this, we have to understand that it is real. The church can struggle of recognizing that and people can struggle in recognizing that. Because a lot of times with the community, when somebody talks about being depressed or being anxious, what do we tell them? Get over it. I laughed at my textbooks because my textbooks describe Midwest mentality a lot. It was really funny. You're describing the ways different people handle different things. They focus on the Midwest a lot because the Midwest thinking pattern is so much of just roll up your sleeves and plow on through. Rob Buxton came up to me after the first service and says, Shelly likes to say, pull up your big boy pants. And you know, some of this is true. Like my whole life as a kid, it was, well, roll up your sleeves and push on through. I say that to my kids all the time. Frankly, Midwesterners, and my textbooks talk about this, Midwesterners are very adept with our coping mechanisms. We're really good at just pushing through with things. But the problem with that type of thinking for mental health as a church, it's not that easy. And as believers, we should be empathetic. If I was to, to walk around preaching and, and, you know, like PK flailing my arms and going all over the place on Sunday morning, if, sorry, sir, uh, I thought you were in the next service. If I was to be doing this and all of a sudden I trip and I break my ankle, how many of you are going to tell me, oh, roll up your sleeves and plow through, Pastor Dave, while I'm up here hobbling on one leg? You're not. That would be ridiculous. So why do we say that kind of stuff to somebody when the most important part of our body, our brain, is stuck in negative thinking patterns. The second thing that needs to be mentioned in this is a church, how we see it and address its real, is the individual needs to address its real as well. You see, we have to acknowledge, believe it or not, that mental health is real. And I say that because my textbooks also talk about Midwesterners as well, have a coping mechanism, and you all know what I'm going to say next. You're like, oh, I've said that too. Where we all think, well, somebody's got it worse than I do. And we use that as a coping mechanism. Do you know how many times I have sat with people in a therapy session who've said, yeah, but somebody has it worse than I do. Like, if that was truly our standard of measurement then that would mean that actually only one person in the world could ever be sad. The guy that's at the bottom. For ease sake of explaining all this, let's call that guy Bob, okay? So everyone else could point to Bob and think, you know what, I guess my life is great because I'm not Bob. Only it doesn't work that way. I mean, sure, Bob or other people may have it worse, but that doesn't mean that you're not struggling with the issues either. Think about this. Listen to what King David said in Psalm chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Do you know what David says in verse 8? He doesn't say, but at least I don't have it as rough as Bob. David says this. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. There is no kind of comfort in saying Bob's got it worse than I do. There's comfort in knowing that the Lord hears us in our times of distress. This is where our hope and our comfort is found. Not only does scripture talk about all of this, but research also backs up the fact that hope Hope is the greatest thing people struggling with anxiety and depression can have to make it more manageable. Because what happens is you're looking past the prison of those two things into the freedom that you have in Christ. 
And so as we dive into our text this morning, I thought this was so fascinating how the first half of Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13, verses 1 to 7 talks about as a community how we have hope for one another, and then verses 8 to 13 talk individually how we have hope. And while this text wasn't written about depression or anxiety or mental health, it's amazing how it speaks to it, though. Verse 1 reads this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. I'm going to take this out of context a little bit because really what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about the strong and the weak, if you go back to chapter 14, Paul is describing two different kinds of of people that believe in Christ, right? You've got what he calls the strong that believe we are freed from the law and faith in Jesus is all that we need to have to save us. And then he describes the weak are those that, that they know that and they believe that but they have the, yeah, but I need to, Okay? And so you've got your, your Christians that way. Yep, I believe that. I've got to have faith in Jesus, and he's the only reason I'm saved from my sin, but it's bad for Christians to dance. You know what I mean? Like you have that, and he actually refers to that kind of as the weak a little bit. He's not saying the strong are better, because in chapter 14, he's warning the strong against pride. And in chapter 14, he's warning the weak against judgmental. But the principle behind this, I think we can extrapolate and use here in this text because we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so friends, as a community of hope, as a community of believers who are here together, you who are strong, you who are walking through life well, when you have a brother or sister in need, you have an obligation to bear with them. You go on to verse 2 then, and it says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's why we do this. That's why we have this obligation that we could build our neighbors up for their good. And it's interesting, too, because I've actually heard this said before. Why should I have to? I was stunned, by the way. During a Bible study on this chapter, and somebody said, why should I have to? Well, let's go to verse three. If you're thinking, why should the guy next to me who's struggling with depression or anxiety or other kind of issues, why is it my responsibility to have to please his neighbor for his own good to build him up? What's anybody doing for me? Well, verse three says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So think about this. Jesus the creator of all things, who made all things through him and for him, comes down to this earth and says, even though everything was made by me and for me, I'm not coming here to please myself, but instead actually to take on all of your burdens on myself. And so if that prideful little voice ever chirps in and says, why should I have to love and serve my neighbor as scripture says I have an obligation to do, Just stop and say, I'm really glad Jesus never said, why should I have to? We're called to model Jesus. So what does it look like then to bear with our brothers and sisters who are struggling with mental health concerns? I love verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. You notice the emphasis on endurance, encouragement and hope 
that's found in the scriptures. And so it's a matter of how we offer those traits to people. One of the great examples of this is found in a book where you see both the good and the bad of it, in the book of Job. Job, if you don't know the stories, this guy where life was going really well until it wasn't. Job's life got so bad that Bob even said, I don't have it as bad as Job. Job, in moments of sheer torment, cried out, God, I wish I never even would have been born. And hear what his friends did for him in chapter 2, verse 13. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Friends, that is an incredible example of the strong bearing with the weak. That's called ministry of presence. It's one of the most incredible ways that you can actually help somebody in a time of crisis. Just sit with them. And then in chapter 4, the whole thing goes south. Because then in chapter 4, listen to verse 2, what Job's friend, who finally speaks after seven days of sitting with a friend that they realize is in such suffering, he goes on to do this. Will you be patient and let me say a word for who could keep from speaking out? Basically, he says eventually, you know what? It's time you hear this, Job. Here's the real problem. You're the one to blame for your problems. He goes on to tell Job that everything going on wrong with him is his fault. How does that sound like that's encouraging somebody who's in a time of need? And yet, you know what? We all kind of do that in our own way here in the church. People that struggle with depression, people that struggle with anxiety, it's not uncommon to hear people tell them, well, you just need to trust the Lord more. And I appreciate the sentiment behind that statement, but in reality, you're actually only adding to their troubles. Because the Christian who's anxious or who's depressed all of a sudden is left wondering now, why don't I trust the Lord more? And I have sat with so many Christians that bring that up. Well, if I trusted the Lord more, maybe I wouldn't be more depressed. If I trusted the Lord more, I wouldn't be more anxious. And guess what you now start feeling more of? Paul goes on to talk about this, though, this example of Christ in community. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Two straight sentences. Paul repeats endurance and encouragement and hope. It's about doing what it takes to give our friends those types of feelings, to endure through this to encourage them through their struggles, to give them that ultimate hope. We should continually be speaking reminders of what's found. You know, over 10 different times, God says, and Scripture says, God will never leave you or forsake you. Over 100 times in Scripture, God promises never to leave us no matter how difficult our circumstances are. Those are the kinds of things we need to speak people, to remind them God is here with you always, not you don't have enough faith or just get over it. And it's more than just telling people that. It's showing them as a church. How do we model this? Because, friends, we are a community of hope. We are all together built on the hope that we have in Jesus. And so what we can do is we model it by also being with them during their struggles. 
How different does it sound to tell somebody to get over it versus we'll endure this together? There's nothing more encouraging than a friend that's willing to walk with you through your struggles. That is modeling the transforming power of the gospel. Because what it is, is as a church and a community, we know the power of the gospel. We know that the hope that we have in the gospel, a hope that isn't just that God is with us, but that God has done all that he has done for us, and we see that in the cross, that he would send his son to die for us, to cleanse us from our sins. We have this hope that leans on Jesus, not that leans on the lies of anxiety, which says, what if I haven't done enough and I'm afraid? It doesn't lean on the lie of depression that says I can never do enough. We are all built on the truth that Jesus is enough. And since Jesus is enough, we can look to the cross and be reminded of this, that God's Son came to free us all from all of these problems by making us right with God that his blood has washed us clean of our problems and given us a hope now to overcome this world and have that assurance of eternity with him. Remember, hope to the Christian is not, gee, I hope something works out. It's we know it shall be. And this hope then reminds us that we've got about 80, give or take a few years of time on this earth, and we have an eternity of God's goodness awaiting us. There is an end in sight, friends, and it is beautiful. We need to be a community that radiates the beauty of our hope, that radiates that we know what is awaiting us, and that is our excitement and our anticipation. And so the second part of this text that I talked about, verse 8 to 13 then, interestingly enough, now shifts to the individual. It shifts away from the communal aspect of encouraging one another and shifts into the aspect of it is your mindset that you have now. Because, friends, depression and anxiety are a mindset. And it's a fascinating thing. I'm not going to get into it here. I'm not, I'm not nearly equipped enough to understand the fullness of his approach. We don't have time for me to go into it anyway. But when you hear depression and anxiety or a mindset, sometimes it can trigger in us some frustration. If you struggle with it, you're like, I wish it wasn't. I don't want to be this way. And it feels like you're hearing just get over it as if you're choosing that way. But Dr. Glasser said this about it. He said that you do not struggle with depression, you are depressing as an action. He said, you do not struggle with an anxiety, you are anxiety-ing. What he's talking about is the behaviors that you choose lead you to that end outcome. It's the end results. Last time I preached, I put a picture of the U.S. up here, the U.S. map, and I said, picture yourself in Texas, and if you want to get to L.A., why did you head east? The whole point is if you want to get to a certain direction, you have to head that way. If you don't like an outcome of something, change your patterns because you're going the wrong direction. Because the same habits always produce the same end results. Believe it or not, all of our life is that way. If you don't like where you're heading or you don't like the outcome, change the direction then. And so in verse 8 to 13, Four different times, Paul is reiterating previous writings all based on hope and encouragement and rejoicing in God. He is telling you, put your mind on rejoicing on the good things of God. 
You see, friends, as an individual, when we praise God, we are thinking about the good things of God, and we think about the good things of God, we have hope because it's the good things. This is an intentional mindset shift that no longer follows the patterns that lead us to be consumed by fear and by hopelessness. What you're doing is you're changing your mindset to focus on the goodness of God. Everything will change the more you focus on the goodness of God. If it sounds like, see, Dave, you're doing it again. You're just saying get over it like everybody else is. My textbooks say the same thing. Listen to this. The best-known approaches to changing maladaptive beliefs or cognitive patterns are rationally emotive behavioral therapy or cognitive therapy. Those are two different approaches. Both approaches are based on the assumption that faulty cognitions cause detrimental self-evaluations and emotional distress and that these experiences lead to behavioral problems. The goal is to help people develop their cognitive ability to recognize faulty statements and substitute with more positive ones. My textbook is saying what the Bible is saying. We think about the good things. Because, friends, we are made to worship our Creator. And that means the more that we focus on the goodness of our Creator, the more that we are going to see His goodness in everything. I've come to realize now after writing this sermon why I use this verse so much in all my messages. Maybe it's because my schooling is having this kind of an impact on me, but I'm starting to recognize the importance of this. When Paul wrote this in Philippians 4, 8 through 9, finally, brothers, and hear all of the words used to describe this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what? And the God of peace will be with you. And this text isn't just for people that struggle with anxiety or depression. If you deal with anger or bitterness or fairness issues, or addictions, or loneliness, or defeat, or burnout, or all of these kinds of thinking patterns that are maladaptive, you're going to get consumed by them. But when you think about these types of things, because you notice none of those types of thought processes are on the screen. All we see on here are on good things. And so we focus on the good things. And a counter to this is, I've heard before, well, this is Pollyannish thinking. You're just denying the truth. Okay? If all of good traits and thinking good traits are Pollyannish and we shouldn't be doing that, how is that other method working for you? What, we're supposed to focus on the negative as if that's a good thing? If God is all-powerful over all things, if Jesus has saved you from your sins, and if he has promised to all of those who believe an eternity with him in all of his goodness, why would you focus on the negative? Because you're suddenly going to see now the negative is only a small little glimmer of a nuisance of this little bit of time that we're on this world in light of the glory of God that we will have for eternity. And so I want to close out on this today. I want you to take two things from this message. And the first is for those that are struggling with depression or anxiety or other, other mental health issues on the individual level. See what we have right here. This, is, this big old book right here is called the DSM-5. 
This is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness. This book tells you everything that's wrong with you. Or there's this book that tells you everything that was wrong with you, but through your faith in Jesus, you have been made new. And so I want to ask you, friends, which book do you want to have define you? Everything that's wrong with you or how Christ has made you new? Because the book that defines you is what's going to affect how you live the rest of your life. The second thing is, as a church, we need to be that community of hope. My textbook said this, researchers have demonstrated that environmental conditions can support the development of positive pro-social behaviors, or conversely, reinforce the development of negative anti-social behaviors. By the way, if people want to be part of a healthy church, it builds them up. Positive adult reactions and peer acceptance are related to friendly, positive interpersonal communication, and this forms a sense of connectedness that is critical for sustained happiness in people's lives. As a community, we are a community of hope, and it builds people up. Interesting statistic I found, actually. Those that go to church, there is a 70% decrease in suicidal ideology because we see a hope all of a sudden. Interestingly enough, that number did not necessarily go down when you did private worship. It was when you were part of a church. And even more so, our level of contentedness comes around more the more involved we are. It's one thing to walk in those doors Sunday morning, sit here for 60 minutes, and then turn around and walk out. Your sense of community is found in your investment in the sense of community. Friends, invest in community, especially with anxiety and depression with wants you to withdraw because it's feeding on itself. Embrace the community that builds one another up. Embrace the community that is this, a community of people that all understand. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Please join me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is so difficult in a world that is filled with its own teachings and its own ideas and an enemy that continually picks at us, fills us with lies. Heavenly Father, let us find our strength and our refuge and our hope in you. Let us as a church community live that hope and embrace one another to carry one another's burdens, Father, all that it would be for your glory and that it would give you praise, thanking you and praising you for that hope that you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.